In this episode, I'm joined by Sangye Atsal, ex-dancer, New York jazz club owner, and brevet lama in the Aroteya lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. We discuss Sangye's personal journey through Santeria, Sufism, and Vedanta, before eventually meeting her future teacher, Nagchang Rinpoche. Sangye discusses her transformative time spent in Nepal with Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche and recounts her completion of the esoteric practice of poem under the guidance of Jomo Sampel. We learn about how to practice Vajra romance outside of a partnership and explore Sangye's passion for the physical practices of Kumye. So without further ado, Sangye Atsal. Sangye Atsal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. So I'm curious how it was you first became interested in meditation and, in your case, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, yeah, that's when I was reflecting on that. It's funny to to think how it started. I was brought up Catholic, um, so but not serious Catholic. Quite uh, my parents were interested in the mystical side of Catholicism, and but I always loved things. In Catholicism like the incense and the symbolism and uh, things like that. Um, so I had that background and, um, and then I just I just believed in meditation. So I remember when I was about 13 I gave a meditation party for my friends which did not go over very well. <laughs> I cooked food and things and then we we went and sat in the living room and I said so now we just sit and you know you could see everybody sort of going this is really boring, you know, so that didn't go down very well. But looking back at that, I think if I, I think, wish I had met my Rinpoche's then, you know, Nakhchen Rinpoche and Kandra Nakhchen Rinpoche then, because um, then I went off on a lot of other paths trying to find what I wanted. And uh, so, so yeah, I was always interested. The saints in um, Catholicism were really something I was very interested in which I think hooks a little bit into the Mahasiddha's tradition as well. They interested me much more than, than God or, you know, and perhaps Jesus as a Mahasiddha too was, so that's, and then rolling fast, you know, fast forwarding through some new age things. And um, then I became Sufi for a while. Um, before that I touched on the Nishrandai Shonen Buddhism for a little bit. And I even touched in, I played with Santeria for a while, which is the sort of voodoo thing. So, um, and I was Sufi when I, I had a really good friend who was always popping around and going to different teachers and things. And she actually found uh, Nachan Rinpoche and Kandradechen for me. So we were in a little cabin. I was living in New York at the time and I'd come back to Britain to visit her. And we were in a little cabin in Dorset and she had bought a cassette of the yogic song, The Arrow Tear. And um, she played that to me and I just had an incredible night's sleep. I don't remember why it was incredible, but I just woke up and thought, this is the thing. I have to find this. I have to know what this is. Um, and it had a, an address on it in New York. So I went and sat with the group there for three months before I met Nakshan Rinpoche. And I met him at a weekend retreat, open retreat. And I just decided I wanted to be an apprentice then. So the rest is history. <laughs> That's fascinating. Let's go back over some of those points. Mm -hmm. how, how did you learn to meditate at 13? What sort of meditation were you leading your friends in? Yes, that's what I think is interesting because looking back, I think it was Shine. It was, I just knew that you, that you just sit. 
and you just you don't do anything else you just sit and you let thoughts come and go and and then I unlearned that and had to learn it all over again <laughs> so it wasn't easy when I found the four now jaws or shine it wasn't easy again because I'd done a lot of I think I'd done a lot of sleepy shine you know in the interim just sort of phasing out and um so I assume then you you hadn't read about that anywhere you it's no? just as what you've just sort of came to you at 13. yeah yeah that's interesting perhaps some people are not so familiar with shine and what you mean by sleepy shine and you know mm. what what you mean there by having had to unlearn all of the learning you'd done from 13. can you talk in a bit of detail about about that arc yes so in the arrow tear there's um what are called the four null jaws which are the mundro for dzogchen uh, for the practice of dzogchen and they're called the four tsingadzen um, and these are in the book, um, Shock Amazement, that Rinpoche and Kandridachin have um, written. Um, and basically, so the shine is that you're just sitting, that you sit and you allow thoughts. You, but the shine means um, remaining uninvolved. So you just sit in a comfortable position and your eyes are slightly, you know, just slightly open and you just allow thoughts to do what they want to do, to come and go. And eventually the idea is that you will stop having thought, which is called stabilized shine. Um, and you know, the premise of that is that we're addicted to thought to prove that we exist. So it's not that thought's a bad thing, it's just that we, we use thought to as um, a reference point. And so this gives us a chance to we're like thought junkies to just experience ourselves without that and to experience that that we exist beyond this thinking machine that we are um so going back to sort of what i had done i i was interested in um sort of vedantism for a while as well and i won't blame blame it on them, but I think they, there's much more an idea of going inside and separating from the world with that in uh, Dzogchen practices and in Shine, you are still completely aware of everything else that's happening, you know, the sound. So you're not blocking anything out. Um, if someone walked into the room and you were practicing and talked to you, you would say, oh, oh you know, you startled me because you'd just be aware of everything that was happening. Um, so the sleepy Shine is, is when that sort of starts, when you're not, um, you're not having thought, but you're also not aware. So it's it's the, so it can be, and that's I think where a teacher is very helpful because a teacher can, you can you can think that things are happening at that point, um, but a teacher can say, well, actually, I, I think that sounds like sleepy shine. And then, you know, you just work through that. But sleepy shine is a sign of that something is, that you're practicing. So it's not a bad thing either, but it can be a dead end if it's all that you do which I think was a little bit where I was headed before I found um, this and also before I found uh, Sufism, because Sufism doesn't have, sort of doesn't have meditation as such, so. After 13, you went into Vedantism at that point. What's the chronology? Because you, oh. you did a lot of interesting things. I mean, Vedantism, Sufism, uh, Santeria, that's an interesting resume. Can you take oh, us a little sure. bit through that timeline? Yes. Um, well, actually at 13 and, and right into my, well, into my 30s and even now, dance, the arts were the main thing for me. So I was, at the same time, I was very obsessed with dancing. I became a dancer. 
Um, so the arts were happening at the same time. So I don't really remember much until um, probably my 20s when I started sort of exploring more. So that's probably when I read things about, I loved Shiva and I just read stories about Shiva and practices. I can't even remember. I got involved with rebirthing when it was around, um, became a rebirthing instructor because I was trying to find a profession that would support my looking for acting work and dancing work. Um, and then the Sufism sort of came in after that. Um, and I was part, I joined Pia Velayat, who's now deceased. His, I think his son has taken over, Sufi Order of the West. Um, I think so I was just, just reading sort of lots of things. I didn't come across Buddhism so much. As I say, when I was a dancer in London at Pineapple Dance Studios, um, there were two dance teachers there who practiced Nishandaya Shonen. Buddhism. I think it's split and changed since then, but I don't know that much about it now. It's, but I know it's developed a bit. Um, but a lot of people, they would, they were choreographers, so they would hire people, and they would always hire the people that were the Buddhist practitioners first. Um, but so I knew about it from there. But then I met, I was waitressing, and I met a crazy, fantastic Italian who um, turned a very bad night into a good night just by being fun and and lovely and uh, he told me about it as well so I started I went to some of their their meetings and things um, and it, that that really wasn't for me but the practice itself was very interesting and it also had the idea that you can be liberated in one lifetime so um, I think that's the diamond sutra it's Japanese in base I think I didn't learn a lot about it. You probably know more about it than I do, but I did the practice, not just the main chant, but also they have a, a book that you, that you run through. So I think what all of these things did for me was even the Santeria was I always had experiences with all of them, you know, quite strong, I guess in Buddhism, we'd call them nyams. Um, and so I think what it helped me realize is that whatever your view is, is what your reality is. I mean, when you start, you know, Santri I touched on, but you know, when you can start to have experiences of, of things like that, and you just realize this is, it's just whatever I'm thinking, whatever I'm believing can happen, can happen. And I, I think that that was a really good basis for the Buddhist practice that, that I have now. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that, perhaps in the context of Santeria, in terms of believing things and they happen and, and, and so on? How I think at one point I lit a candle and, you know, you could do all of this could be imagination, but I lit a candle and an amazing thing happened with a bee where it was, you know, almost trying to kill itself in the candle, you know, and there was this, you know, nothing like that's ever happened before or since. Um, so it is interesting that, to me that you know what what we put out there is what we get back and uh and very simply you know as as a lot of people teach you know very simply then if we put out kindness we get that back you know it's, it's sort of i've simplified i don't need the sort of the santeria experiences of uh, <laughs> strong voodoo stuff what's the story of the bee well that was it really just that it was I can't remember the exact practice I was doing, but it was um, something, the candle was signifying a very strong, a very powerful Santeria being. And um, in Santeria, a lot of it is about sacrifice, you know, um, 
and it was just as if this bee was trying to go to the flame and be killed in the flame. It was very odd anyway. <laughs> so I sort of gave up around that point. I thought that I, I just, this is not for me. This, it's all a bit, it was all a bit too um, gross, I think, mm. as in bee. What was it that brought you to New York? Uh, the arts again. So um, I had, uh, I started a jazz club and I also like to sing. So I'm now with Savage Cabbage, the, the band that uh, Nutching Rinpoche has. Um, so I was, the next step was I danced, I tried acting, then I wanted to sing. <clears throat> and I'd met, I started a jazz club in Leicester Square one night a week in London. And I've met a lot of jazz musicians through that. And um, so I sort of moved to New York to further that and act a bit more and dance. And, and then I got into African dance when I was in New York. So I think when I met Nacho Rinpoche, I was um, very involved in African dance too. So. What sort of African dance? West African, I assume. Yes. Yeah, very good. West African, Senegalese, so Sabah. Mm. Yeah, which is very different form to other African dance, isn't it? Wow, okay. So tell us then about that first meeting with Nakchan Rinpoche. I believe he was uh, giving a slideshow. He used to um, show slides in those days and talk about what they were. And so I had experienced three months formally of his Sangha that was very small at the time in New York and so friendly and so helpful. And I'd read, by that time, I'd read some books and... Um, he was just um, extremely kind and very simple. Just, um, I think, I think what threads Nakshang Rinpoche, Kandradechen Rinpoche, Kyabje Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche, Jomo Sampa Rinpoche, the, the ones that I've met that are great practitioners is this incredible, uh, they're extraordinary by how simple they are. You know, they're not trying to be anything. And I think, so it's very hard to describe that because um, usually going back to Santeria, you know, we want magic and we want, we want to talk about, you know, lights and all this kind of thing. And I don't know, um, apparitions. And, but actually what's been, what's blown me away and inspired me so much by all of those people I mentioned is that they just are who they are. And that simplicity is, um, it's extremely moving and it, it just has made me want to be that as well. Just people who have no, um, oh, I can't know what to call it. Um, when you put things on, you know, no um, airs or graces or- Pretense, artifice. Pretense, that's the word, thank you. Yeah, exactly. And with that, extremely kind and generous. So that's, sort of what, that's what came across. Um, and I don't know why I decided that I wanted to be an apprentice so quickly, but I think it's, you know, if the way I shop is like that as well. I can never find things when I want them. But if I see a piece of jewelry, you know, once I found a fantastic amber bracelet in New York and I was really poor and I just, I don't know how I got the money. I just talked to friends and things, but I knew I had to have that bracelet, you know? Um, but it's not logical. I just sort of tended to know. So that's that's what it was like. I think it was. 
it was just, yeah, it's just, this is it. And I think the experience with the Sangha, because it, funnily enough, I had always said, I will never have a guru, I'll never follow a guru, and I'll never be part of a Sangha. <laughs> so whenever I say never, watch out. Um, but the Sangha was so down to earth as well, and so friendly, and, uh, and I, I think our Sangha is an amazing, amazing Sangha, you know, worldwide. So um, I think that helped as well. I thought, well, these are people that fun that I just want to mix with I want to get to know so that helped as well interesting so when you became an apprentice is there an application process there or was it just simply a conversation and then as that began to happen what practices were you doing uh, what what were those initial weeks and months like I, I mean this was how many years ago 20 years ago you say I think it was 27 1993 my maths isn't that good <laughs> it's hard to remember what I was doing then um, so uh, there wasn't an application process then, there is now. Um, <clears throat> so I had an interview with Rinpoche and I don't really remember what we discussed. I do remember saying to him that I tended to sort of land on things and then disappear again um, and that I wasn't good at sticking with things. Um, so I sort of pre-warned him of that and uh, so that's interesting, 27 years later, or whatever it is. And then he just asked, he said that all contradiction and he asks is that we're kind and considerate to each other as Sangha members and in the world. So that was a stipulate, the only stipulation that, that he gave, which of course is quite a difficult one to follow if <laughs> you take it seriously. So, and then there was a week retreat happening after that. And the same friend that had introduced me to the cassette tape was in New York visiting me. So I abandoned her for the days of the next retreat, but she completely understood. But um, uh, Rinpoche said, well, good, there's a retreat happening now, so you can come next week to that. And um, so that was wonderful. And the main thing I remember about that retreat was, um, apart from all the sort of spiritual teachings and things that were just flying over my head, was the celebration that we had. So when we finish a retreat, we have a celebration, which is a way of, sort of reintegrating back into the world and people perform. And uh, people who, who aren't performers perform and there's no judgment, you're just experiencing as there's the audience, you experience it without judgment. And um, I just thought that was an amazing, you know, being a performer, I thought it was amazing for an audience to to not judge and to experience people who didn't think of themselves as performers you know being giving exquisite performance so that um that was really what i remember most about that retreat and what was the relationship like then going forward presumably some sort of correspondence some instructions in terms of practicing and reporting and then further retreats i assume yes that's right so um always the Shine practice or Four Naljors and um, mantra recitation. Um, I can't remember what order these came in. And of course, living in New York, Kondradatian um, didn't come over so often then, but Rinpoche came twice a year. Um, and yes, yeah, so and in those days there were no computers, so uh, we were corresponding by mail. <laughs> um, I feel old. And then, uh, so 
I think, and then I started this journey of going backwards and forwards between Britain and New York. So I came back and lived here for a while and met the British Sangha and, and then went back there. And that sort of continued until I think 1998 was my first pilgrimage to, I knew by 98 that I wanted to get ordained. And so that was my first pilgrimage to Nepal. Um, and that was one that Rinpoche and Dechen weren't on. It was uh, led by Ngakma Shadrol and I can't remember who else, but she was, I remember she picked me up at the airport. Um, and that's when we first met Kunzang Dodji Rinpoche and Juma Sampa Rinpoche. Uh, so that was, that just felt like a real leap into it being very real and, uh, and home and basically my life. So that was, that was really wonderful. What do you mean by that? A jump a leap into your home and your life? I, I think um, a lot of people say this who've practiced in the West and then travel to Nepal. And Nepal, it's interesting because when Rinpoche talks about being there in the 70s, he talks about it wasn't, you know, there were no shops and it wasn't like this. And now I'm talking like that about it now because 20 years ago I went there and it was so different. You know, now it's so much more modern and so much more busy and built up. Um, but what's still there is that you're not um you're not a novelty you know there i mean other people are practicing other religions but buddhism is one of the major religions and so people recognize you as a buddhist practitioner they understand what you're why you're there what you're doing um so especially now because we've been going there for such a long time wearing the you know wearing the robes when i first went there obviously i wasn't wearing the robes and not many of us were but um, so, yeah, and I just, I love the East. I love, I love that change. I love culture shock. You know, I love having to change how I am and what I do and what, what my sense of hygiene is and dirt and all of that. <laughs> so I like the sort of, I like the difference as well. Um, but that's more a personal thing. I think what, yeah, I just think I felt very like this was my path now. This is like, you know, this is it. And I knew I was working towards ordination probably at that point as well. I was ordained in 2000. So, um, so then in 1999, I went back and I stayed at Yeshe Gyepujong with Kepje Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche and Joma Sampa Rinpoche. And I stayed where they were staying. And I finished, I completed the three week retreat. Um, I don't think I'd done the, we, we have certain stipulations that we have to have fulfilled before we are ordained. And um, so I did, I finished everything in that three weeks and then was ordained after that. By Quintin Dojo Rupache and Jomo Sampel? No, I was ordained. I went to, I was in Holland and I think, I can't remember, a lot of us were ordained, um, but we were ordained by Naksha Rupache and Kandra Dejan Rupache. So, but they, it was just that, um, Kunzang Dodger Rinpoche and Joma Sampa Rinpoche allowed me to stay there. And uh, that was the first time I'd sort of had a, a more personal um, experiences with them. So Kunzang Dodger Rinpoche played with uh, me a lot. <laughs> I'd love to hear all about that. Kunzang Dodger Rinpoche has come up on the podcast a number of times, guests have mentioned him. Yeah. Not only Arotere people, Others have also mentioned him, meeting him uh, in Kathmandu, in Nepal. And of course, 
your teacher, Nakchan Rinpoche, writes about him extensively mm -hmm. in the book Wisdom Eccentrics. Yes, fabulous book. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm curious. Give us the give us the give us the stories. Give us the details. You know, what's uh, what was it like? Tell us all about it. Oh, um, different. What I find interesting is when different Sangha members talk about it, it's different as well. So clearly, you know, and this is what Nakchan Rinpoche and Kandradeshan Rinpoche do as well. And it's what I love about this lineage of um, Goka Chungla Day, but you know, of, of the teacher student is that they play with your individual neurosis, you know, your individual um, ability to flip that into enlightenment. Um, so of course it is different with everybody, but you know, sometimes when people talk about them, I think, well, I, I didn't see that person or, you know, and I have to say them because it's, it, of course, Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche is, was an incredible being, but Joma Sampa Rinpoche is as well. And I've spent a lot of time with her um, now that Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche has died. And she seems to embody the two of them, which is very interesting as well. But um, so I was young and I was quite nervous and uh, there was a translator at the time. And sometimes Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche would just say, you know, you can, like to tell her to come and she can come and visit now or something and Joma Sampa would either be there or not um but uh so one thing one thing that he did was my name was uh Sangye Kandro before I was ordained and whenever I think of Kunzangadrimpche I think of him sort of dancing you know he always seemed to be even when he was sitting he just seemed huge and always to be dancing and moving and um just alive from the inside out and uh, so there was always that sense of um, play even when he wasn't necessarily playing but this one time he came downstairs and he said oh you Kandro you're not Kandro you know Kandro I don't know why you're called a Kandro I've never seen a Kandro and you're definitely not a Kandro so he just went on and on and sort of beat any special feelings I had about myself down, but in a really gentle, lovely, fun way. I mean, and I was just, you know, I think most of the time just thrown into complete emptiness, which is a wonderful experience. Um, and then we used to some afternoons, um, we would just sit and I've, and I didn't know what to do. So I just showed him my dictionary, my English Tibetan dictionary. And um, so we would just look at different words and, laugh about those and um but i realized very recently thinking about my time with them and him when we were alone and i think you know sort of the more one practices i realized that that's sort of everything was transmission in a sense um well not in a sense i think i believe everything was transmission but and this beautiful aspect that even if you don't get it at the time you know, 20 years later, it's still there to be discovered. And it might even, the feeling of what it was that was being transmitted could change. Um, but there was, it's just, there's just, there's play in every moment. There's something arising in every moment. And if we're not sort of trying to keep this linear idea of ourselves intact, you know, and I think that that's what was happening. It was just extraordinary because it was whatever was there to be conjured with, to be appreciated, to be enjoyed was what was happening. Would you say that was the heart of the of the transmission that still resonates to this day? 
I think so. I find it changes, but I think so. Perhaps it changes as we're able to, um, as we get to a point where we can perceive it or something. How has it changed for you over the decades? Well, I think I knew in the beginning, you know, when it was happening, that it was extraordinary. I just didn't know anything more than that. Um, and knew it threw me into emptiness, which was something I was trying to discover. So that was good too. Um, but yes, I think that the more that uh, I worked with Nakshan Rinpoche and Kandradejan Rinpoche, perhaps the more I've understood that there's been a beautiful sort of echoing uh, coming back to them as teachers and perhaps we take them a little for granted or their their presence is you know they're so even if we don't take them for granted their presence is so natural that it's easy you know to forget that how amazing they are and then of course one does remember that but I think every time I've visited Joma Sampal and um, Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche that's been I've realized I have that here as well. When you mentioned that he was teasing you about not being a Kandro and even though you were called Kandro and so on, and you were thrown into emptiness. That's an interesting phrase. Perhaps you could unpack it a bit. What do you mean by the word emptiness? And how would it be that someone teasing you would throw you into such an experience? Hmm. Um, I guess we all experience emptiness differently so perhaps um but there wasn't a i suppose with everything that kunzang dojo rinpoche did one could become or any uh great lama you one could become completely insulted or um nervous or uh, when i think of kunzang dojo rinpoche he it always makes me laugh and uh that's quite interesting given the stories that Nutcheng Rinpoche has told um, because I think oh, I almost feel like we were the grandchildren that then he was really lovely to you know but I was quite a nervous serious person and uh, and still to this day when I think of him it makes me laugh and um, and makes me feel sort of quite confident but I so I think that it was the experience of not uh, not relating to, to self or to the person who was creating the situation as one usually would. So in some way you become empty um, because you're not even the self that you usually are. You're not trying to cling on to whatever you think you are. Um, and also sometimes I didn't know what to think or say or do. So it was just completely empty, which is uh, quite a freeing experience. So it sounds like you was using the word emptiness there as a sort of flexibility of self-identity as well as a state of not knowing what to say or what to think kind of mouth agape state yes probably um or just the emptiness of you know when we're in love we're empty when we're laughing we're empty you know so i, I think i mean empty of self in lots of ways that we're not not self-conscious but also empty of thought as one experiences in shine you know just just that emptiness of um that we try to discover when we're practicing shine as well mm -hmm. that's interesting is there a tibetan word that you're thinking of that you're translating as emptiness or is it the sort of interpretation one might encounter in the arrow tear mainly uh i'm not that scholarly but um 
<laughs> that'd be a good question for uh or but um no i think i just mean um the experience of of just of emptiness of being empty um but but it is all the same in a sense when you're not um experiencing i think that's what sort of Dog Chen talks of, is Dog Chen's basically working with the elements totally, um, or you know, and Shine is the first of the four Naljors that then then thought is brought back after that. But I think um, experiencing oneself as empty then helps one to arise in the moment as anything. So there's that the freedom that happens through that. Um, so I wasn't sort of thinking of technical terms, just experiential emptiness which is helpful to discover mm -hmm. um, yes that's very interesting and in those days very much what i wanted to discover of course because i just started sitting and um didn't have many experiences of no thought <laughs> at all <laughs> so i think that was probably why that was quite profound for me then as well mm. and i think being a performer and a dancer <clears throat> you're taught to look at yourself from the outside in you know, as a dancer, particularly I grew up practicing ballet. I mean, you think you're clocking at least 150 things about your appearance just doing this. You know, you have to know where your toes are, your navel, your everything. So I think that there was, I forget that, but I think there was quite a lot of, you know, self-consciousness there that that probably blew open quite a bit, I think. Mm. by prodding it you mean or by giving an opportunity to react differently yeah I think, I think part of it once again is view so i knew he was an incredibly great lama and um you know my teacher's teacher and my teachers had talked about him with such love and um devotion so you know i went there with devotion so that's one thing so anything that he would have done would have been fine by me but um so I think it was, and then it was also what, you know, how he played with that, which at the time was, um, I think that self-consciousness wasn't even, I didn't even know I was that way then, I think, you know, that's only when it starts to fall away, I think that you know that. So it didn't feel threatening in any way. It just felt, I felt um, very accepted. And uh, and then you just tend, as I said earlier, you know, when we're laughing, we we tend to forget to worry about what we look like or who we are. So it's just that complete freedom of just being in the moment. You mentioned neurosis before and something that I hear from lots of people, especially people in the arts, is that their neurosis is intimately linked with their creative process. Mm. And sometimes the creative process actually turns the lead of neurosis into, the, into gold somehow. And so it's not, it's sort of integrated in the creative process somehow. I've heard that from lots of artists of various stripes and to relax or extract uh, one's neurosis uh, can be destabilizing or can take away some of the key ingredients of the creative process, such as the impetus to create at all. I'm curious, you know, as you went through these changes, and it sounds like quite deep personality changes, what effect, if any, there was on your work as an artist, as a dancer, as a performer and so on? It's so interesting you bring that up because I was uh, recently talking to uh, Nakshan Rinpoche and Kandradechan Rinpoche about this because I, um, I'm always flabbergasted that there aren't more artists 
as part of the Arotea, more people are coming in. And some of us obviously are, were professional artists, still are. And um, that was one of, one of my muses about it is, is it because people feel they, that if they lose the neurosis, then they lose the impetus for art? But, you know, the thing about the, the Dzogchen um, practice is that, you know, we have the tantric arts, which are the tango painting and the dance the, and different, you know, and statue making. But then very much the way that Rinpoche and Daichen teach is um, through the arts, you know, so through the, through the sense fields and experiencing the sense fields. And um, it's not that, I think, I think it's freeing to, to lose this sort of self that you identify with that the art has to come out of. Um, but when you just start to appreciate, you know, this is what they have helped me to learn, that when you appreciate everything in life, when you start to appreciate things and, and to, um, you know, if, if you're creative, then you're aligning yourself with the sense fields and, and the senses and the sense fields. And so then you're just continually creative because ideas come up and you can't not have ideas then. And then it doesn't matter. You know, then there's the self that created it in that moment, but there doesn't have to be an angst self. I think as artists, you know, we're so cheated by having to um, believe that uh, about ourselves, you know. And it was also, as you were talking, I was thinking interesting because in Tantra, of course, you know, you're taking the neurosis and seeing its enlightened side through the elements. Um, but art, I guess that's sort of what you were describing with what artists feel that they can do. But, um, but for me personally, it's really interesting that, you know, I tried, I tried, uh, I started out a dancer, then I nearly became a sculptor. I got into a sculpture school, but I deferred because I didn't know whether I wanted to dance or sculpt. And, and then I acted and sang, and I never thought they should be separate. And part of what I sang with um, a woman from uh, South Africa too, for a while, and uh, we sang in Zulu and Pulsa. And, uh, you know, she said to me, I said, I love African culture because you don't separate. You don't say, now you have to be a singer or what, do you, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, you're going to be a dancer. They just, it's all together and everyone can do it all. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's how I, that's what I feel has happened with, you know, I wanted a spiritual practice. And uh, what I didn't say was I always wanted a spiritual practice that I knew this from early on too, that would encompass my entire life. That wasn't just going to mass once a week. And uh, so, so of course that's, you know, it's perfect for me because the arts. so now I'm doing more art of the arts than I ever did. The tanka painting, the singing with savage cabbage, um, you know, the making tantric sort of implements. Um, there's much more than that, but I can't think of them. You know, the, the dances, that's just, you know, in the Arate we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have the dances of the, the actual, um, the ritualistic dances, but then we have the, the dance of, um, it's gone out of my head, sorry. Um, the natural dignity practices that Barsha Dorje and Maisel Gelmo teach. So, so there's just, you can just completely, you know, jump in and enjoy all of them. <laughs>
so that's what it's given me. It's given me, it hasn't necessarily given me a way to make, a mon make money at it, but it's given me a way that I feel that everything can be art, you know, and you saw that when uh, you interviewed Rupert Jane Dage and I think with the, you know, they're incredible, the house and how everything is a piece of art. And, um, and then that discovery that art and appreciation are so linked. So basically, and view again, and any, everything can be appreciated, so everything can be art. So a big part of the Arrow Terror that I think most people will be aware of in terms of information on this website and, and in the way it operates is this idea of teaching couples and this idea of Vajra romance, a particular way of looking at relationship within the, within the context of, of Chokchen and the Arrow Terror and so on. I'm curious, what your take or experience with that side of the teaching has been? Um, yes. Well, everything, of course, in Buddhism is emptiness and form, isn't it? So, um, and then when you start, to, so then everything is described in that way. And so, of course, you have this wonderful opportunity with male and female um, to teach in that way. But I think it is the Kandra and Yido Melongyo teachings are, are amazing teachings, which are the, the, um, the couple mirroring teachings. Um, so I'm, I've been single most of my life. Um, I love being single. So, um, you know, one could think, well then I miss out on all those teachings, but it is possible to view the phenomenal universe, the entire phenomenon, phenomenal universe as, um, in my case, method display or form. And um, that's something that's transmitted, um, but can't really be explained. Uh, and that I think is what's so interesting about reading The Heart of the Sun and Moon, which is the book about this, um, that Nakhchen Rinpoche and Kandra Dejan Rinpoche have written. Um, and so it's more, you just have to feel your way into it. And, um, and then a man would view the phenomenal universe as empty or wisdom display. And then of course that, you know, that, that also happens with Sangha members too, you know, that um, a male Sangha member, you know, that I can, all my male Sangha members, I can sort of, um, although it's not romantic, but I can still appreciate their method display. So I'm not sure what else to say about it, but if you ask me things. <laughs> Yeah, well, could you give an example of what you mean by uh, appreciating your fellow Sangha members' method display? Yeah, this is where it's it's more poetic than it's. A, um, so once you start sort of trying to talk about what it is, it be, it can be concretized, you know, and then become a bit like a how-to book. So that's why it's a little bit difficult. And I think um, Rinpoche and Candidate and Rinpoche do it so much better in <laughs> wearing the heart of the sun and moon than I could, but. Um, I guess uh, the way that some it could be the way that somebody walks. It could be the way a woman walks as well. You know that uh, the turn of the heel. You know the the shape they make, the mechanism of how the hip works. Um, you know, it could be something like that. It could be the way they solve a problem. Um, it could be, you know, just yeah, what they what they do. How they do things, um, so you're seeing it as as form rather than as empty. And then that same thing can be seen 
through the eyes of a man looking at looking at it as wisdom display in a woman. Can you think of a, a representative, if not definitive, example of that? I don't know, with the phenomenal universe, perhaps it's easier to talk about that. You know, one could look at a mountain range and um, the way um, the water's carved, you know, carved a shape in the rock or something. Um, and, you know, be aware of sort of the years that it took to create the mountain. And um, whereas I suppose, I mean, I don't look at the world as wisdom display, so... And forgive me, my Rinpoche's, if I'm saying this incorrectly. But um, so perhaps, you know, that would be more how it feels, you know, a sense of the, the just sort of inherent beauty of that or the, um, see, I'm not as good at this. Um, so it's more wisdom display. It's more empty, you know, the way that you would view it. It'd be better to ask a man about that. But. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's talk about Poa from when I was, visiting Akchang Rinpoche and Kandra Dechen to film an interview with them at their home. They mentioned you in that interview and they had discussed, maybe I'll insert that part actually, that'd be quite cool to have a, a clip here. And they mentioned that one of their students at that time was in Kathmandu with Joma Sampel and was engaged in the poet retreat practices with her and said that you had achieved the sign of the success with that practice, uh, which is quite a remarkable sign, actually, and that they have recently received a WhatsApp picture. <laughs> <laughs> Attesting to that fact, uh, I'll let you explain it all. So can you talk a bit about that uh, retreat and the significance of having achieved that sign? Mm, significance. Um, well, first of all, just about the picture, that was um, thanks to Carl Sung, who actually said now take a picture because I would never have thought to do that so I was just so in the moment that um so that great gratitude to her for that um she's probably more used to having people achieve it around her than I was um so where to start well I had heard about power um many years ago from a student of Rinpoche's who's not a student anymore in New York who had said asked if he if he taught it and at that point, he just said, no, I don't teach it. And uh, I think she described it was, you know, I was, it was very early days for me. So I hadn't really heard much about Buddhism. And uh, she said, you, you know, go up, pop out of the top of your head. At, and I thought, oh, that, yeah, that sounds like the thing. And then I forgot it, but just seemed to have a connection to it. And then I forgot about it. And then over the years, I'd asked um, Rinpoche and Dachin if I could learn it and, um, Finally, a transmission was given. And I should say here that Nakshan Rinpoche and Dachin, poets often thought of as um, quite secret. And, uh, but Nakshan Rinpoche and Kandra Dachin and Rinpoche have, um, I guess, a, a system where if other Tibetan lamas are teaching it to the public then they, and talking about it, then they feel like, well, we may as well also talk about it. And so that is the reason that um always talked about I actually came back from it thinking I wouldn't be discussing it with anybody and didn't realize that it was all open now and everyone talks about it and it's on YouTube and uh, so I was way behind but um so I think it was being taught in the 70s and 80s by uh Chakdub Tulku and Ayang Rinpoche um so 
so that is the reason that because I think some people still do believe it's quite a secret thing and shouldn't be discussed so but I guess my reason for being happy to discuss it is that I think it's wonderful for, for people to know it is it's possible um, and uh, so um, I had wanted to practice a month retreat and I didn't I was just talking to Natural Rinpoche and Kundra Dejan Rinpoche about what I should practice and they said they said well perhaps um, perhaps this would be the time to practice power then so um, they gave me the well I'd already received the Ngundro so I spent a month in London um, during the summer practicing the Ngundro for the power and then I had already planned to go to Nepal I've been trying to visit Nepal every year so um, so then that was the same it's like well perhaps you could uh, you know visit Jomo Sampal Rinpoche and practice POA and complete it when you're there. So uh, it, it was very much a sort of backwards and forwards between Joma Sampal Rinpoche and Kalsang also who I mentioned who's lived with, um, she's a student of Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche and Joma Sampal and has lived with them on and off for years and uh, she's the person who rents, who has the house that Joma Sampal lives in and she's amazing, it was amazing help and wonderful as well. Um, so I would ask Joma Sampal Dejan Rinpoche questions and then you know she'd say well I think you should ask Natural Rinpoche and Kandra Dejan Rinpoche about that and so there was a sort of a WhatsApp exchange as well thank goodness for WhatsApp that happened which was quite nice um, of them saying backwards and forwards what I should do but um, so yes that was uh, I think three weeks in retreat I don't think it took that long but um, just um, I've sort of lost what to say about it really, but Gemma Sampal was amazingly supportive. Yeah, ask me questions. <laughs> uh, what was the retreat schedule? And also what's the lineage of Poe? Is it from the Arrow Terma? Nakcha Rinpoche mentioned that it's visualizing Yeshit Sogyal, Yeshit Sogyal mantras, and presumably some sort of movement of the of the of the energies in the central channel, at least if it's like regular kind of Poe. So what was the retreat schedule like and sort of practices were you engaged in? And how did you begin to know it was working? Yes, that's a good question. Because I think that um, POA is an interesting, uh, I've done a lot of long retreat before, but I think it's interesting because you're trying to make something happen. And so there's, it's a bit, can be a bit neurotic as well, I guess. Or if, so it's good not to be neurotic about it. But um, there is this sense that you're trying to discover something happening. And I think that's also where it was wonderful to practice it in Nepal and anybody else who's some people who have practiced it since. And, and that's why people, go, I, well, it's not why, but people go to Joma Sampal um, for her to recognize the signs. And, um, but I think it is very helpful to be, I actually stayed in a hotel that run by Nepalese people who, um, was so supportive and the young man is interested in Buddhism. Um, so I was extremely supported by them. They knew that I'd be practicing there. Um, and so I, I did a four turn, turn is sort of just like a, a um, time that you, so I, four of two hours, so eight hours of only the power. Um, the arrows here, going back to your question about the lineage, yes, it's, it comes from, um, from the arrow terma. What's rather lovely about this one, it also comes through from Jomo Chimipema taught it to Aralingma as a familial lineage as well. So we have both in there. And then uh, it was realized in envisionment from Yeshitsogil by Kunchanga Aralingma. So it's sort of, there's two connections to it, which is quite lovely. 
um, it is Arotea, which means it doesn't have any long sardanas. It's uh, Dzogchen um, in style. And um, so I just practiced that eight hours a day. And then occasionally, most days I would visit Gemma um, Sampa Rinpoche and Carl Sung would translate and we'd talk a bit about my practice or we'd just sort of sit and be together or drink tea together. So there was this sort of very lovely, you know, normal time with intense practice, which I think is really lovely for a Westerner to experience because it's, um, I think we think, you know, we have to practice all the time and we get very serious about it. And the way that Tibetans are, you know, those stories I told before, it's, it's everything is practice. And then, you know, so it's not separate, um, even though you have these quite intense sessions of practice all day long. Um, so I was, I didn't really know what to expect as far as the signs. Um, and so Carl Sung was very clear and, and Joma Sample and, uh, were very clear about where you'll get sort of, you know, itching or headaches or they just told me what would happen. Um, and I mean, I think to the point when my head was looked at, I still wasn't sure, although I was. So, um, so then uh, it, that was quite lovely as well, the way that the, the kusha grass is actually put into your, into the hole as a point of sort of to show that it's been accomplished. Um, and kusha grass is interesting because it's, I think, because it's, considered quite sacred but it's also used as a broom you know so it's um i think it's put on some some systems put it under the pillow for dream yoga and um but joma sampal was busy and we'd had i think we practiced sock first and um Carlson had called me up and she said come over for sock and uh you know then we'll get joma sampal to to check your head and uh and then joma sampal had to go somewhere so um, we finished the sock and there were more people there than there usually would be. And um, people were helping Jumma Sampa get dressed and she was looking for a purse and everything. And then thanks to Carl Sung, Carl Sung said, I said, well, perhaps not today. And she said, no, 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 you stay, you stay. We, we check, we check. And um, so then in the middle of all of this wonderful chaos, which is very you know, typical of Nepal, um, she asked if it could be checked and, uh, so um, there was a Lama there who spends time with um, Joma Sampo and Pache sometimes called, um, I've forgotten his name, sorry, Tamshi Rinpoche. And Joma Sampo asked him to check my head for me. So he did. And then he she said something to him, which I think was go and get the grass. And then he disappeared and just pulled a piece of the grass out of the broom and then put it in my head. And that was that. And then everyone went off shopping. So it was um, <clears throat> quite lovely that it wasn't, you know, that it was just very normal as well. You know, that I found that quite moving actually. That it, um, no big fuss is made. Now you've you've done that. That's good. Now get on with something else, or you know. So not too much pomp and ceremony. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of questions after that. You're doing these four practice sessions a day and there's no long sadhana, et cetera. So how are those practice sessions arranged? Are you doing uh, physical exercises as well? Are you doing shine to kick things off? Or do you start straight away, mm -hmm. hit the ground running with a po practice? And how long does the po practice take? 
does it take two hours or is it a two minute practice that you do for two hours repeatedly? Yeah, I probably won't. Um, I, I will teach publicly and um, I'm very happy to, but I, I, I feel a little bit like if, if someone gives the entire method, then there's a little bit lost about, I mean, it's like if you watch a dress rehearsal of a play, there's a little bit lost about watching the actual play. Um, that's a bad example, but anyway, bad analogy. But um, so I probably won't say what's actually involved, but yes, I did practice the four nail jaws every morning because that's just our basic practice. So I practiced that in the mornings. Um, and then I would just practice power. So, which is, um, it's, it's something, it, I would just loop. So basically um, yep. just keep going. And, uh, and then um, very similar to what you described earlier anyway. And Yeshit Sogyal Mantra is a big part of it. So a lot of singing, you're singing Yeshit Sogyal Mantra, which is beautiful. Um, <clears throat> and um, then I would put, you know, because Kumye is so good for, uh, if anything, sort of for sitting a lot and very intense practice. So that, so the Kumye would, I would put that in, I'd sort of um, set the retreat that I would practice Kumye if I needed it. So needing it meaning, you know, sort of feeling stuck or sitting too long or headaches or anything like that. Um, so then I would practice that for probably half an hour where I, when and where I needed to, which wasn't that often actually. Kumye being the physical exercises. Yes, sorry, yes, the physical exercises. Yes, mm -hmm. which I'm heavily addicted to. <laughs> uh, having a completed or, well, how would you say? What would the word be when you, whatever you've done with the power practice, what would be the word? Completed, is yeah, that fair to say? Completed, it's good, yeah. Yeah. Um, having completed that power practice, how does that situate you now? Yeah, maybe we should say achieve the sign um, because because I I think that's it's sort of the beginning of the practice rather than ta-da, I'm some great being who's achieved something. Um, so it's it's really um, I think it's like any practice. It's just what you know what you're drawn to. Um, what I mean, I think that's what's interesting about just hear, hearing it. I felt drawn to it years and years ago. And um, some traditions, it's obviously very different depending on the different yanas and also the different schools. So some schools you wouldn't, I don't think they practice it again or they practice it every two years to keep it fresh. Uh, some people practice it all the time. I came back and that's what I should mention was asked, uh, that, that's when Nacho uh, Rinpoche and Kandradechi Rinpoche suggested that I start become a brevet lama or a teacher. Um, and then obviously teach this. Uh, so the idea is with, which you probably already know, but with Kandradechen and um, Rinpoche and Nacho Rinpoche only taking a certain amount of students, then in order for other people who need personal teachers, um, the idea is that there's this brevet Lama system where other students who know quite a lot can then give teachings and we'll have specialties. And so then the whole of the Arotea is sort of still covered, if you like. Um, and we can send each other's students to each other. Um, and obviously, well, Rinpoche and Kandradechen are still alive, then they also go to them for teachings. Um, so I was asked to be part of that and to, so I've continued the POA. 
Interesting. Yeah, I wonder if there's, is there any provision for the passing on of the lineage of the Araterra Terma within one person? Or is it going to be, do you think, by necessity or maybe by design, diffused among uh, lots of different lamas? Because, of course, from what I understand, Nakchang Rinpoche, from what he said, Nakchang Rinpoche received it all at once as a sort of mm. spiritual download and has the entire system in his head. He, tell, he tells that in quite a bit of detail in, when I interviewed him at his house. How on earth could that be passed down to one person? Will there be a lineage holder coming out of that uh, after he has died? Or, or what's, is there a provision for that? Is there much discussion about that within the Sangha? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's really a good question for them. <laughs> I'm nearly the same age, so I'm not sure that I'll be around much longer. Um, but there is provision obviously being made, but uh, ordination, um, during ordination, everyone uh, receives a download, if you like, of the arrow, the entire arrow tear. It's just whether you have the um, capacity to, to, to know that, to, to, to practice that, to be that. Um, so, um, but there is this also, even within, you know, them still being here and still being alive, there is this, which I really uh, treasure, this teaching that, you know, the, the true Vajra relationship, which is they won't take more than a certain amount of students. Um, and it's very much, you know, goes back to the first spread and the Mahasiddha, you know, Rinpoche and Lechen have even said it's probably what, I think the number is 111, that's probably even too many. So, you know, even if we're not talking about the future of the Arotea, even sort of now, people who want that, who need that personal relationship with a Lama, um, something had to happen at some point uh, so that they could have a teacher in that capacity. So that, that's part of the Brevet Lama system. Um, I think, do you know Brevet, that comes from, Rinpoche took that from a uh, military term so people would be a brevet major, which meant that they were a major with all the responsibility, but not the pay. Um, and it's, it doesn't mirror that exactly, but we were talking about this recently and uh, Nakta Rinpoche was saying that in Tibet, people would, this would also happen, you know, that, that a Lama would say, we'll go and go and learn that from Jigme, or you, you learn that from, you know, Chinli or something like that. Um, and even though they weren't actually called teachers, and they didn't have their own students, but Rinpoche was saying there's no word for that in Tibet, that just happened. It's, it's, so it's partially a tradition in that respect as well. And then, um, you know, Brevet also implies that the Lamas, you know, there is, there's a whole sector of, um, like ordination, there are things that we have to complete in order to become fully-fledged Lamas uh, as well. But I, yes, I do believe there's been provision made, but I'm not sure that um, I know enough about it to talk about it. But but that will be the future that all these, all the brevet lamas will become lamas, and then they will also be teaching it, and uh, and perhaps there'll be connections to other other schools or other lamas who also hold it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, I I found it very interesting that, that Rinpoche recently said, you know, with um with sort of some of segments where people just come, come up as teachers and there's no lineage, then that's quite difficult for people when that person dies. And I had never thought of lineage in that respect as well. You know, I, there's more and more I find out about lineage that I 
I come to appreciate. But I thought that was very interesting as well, that, you know, the lineage is bigger than the person. So when the person dies, all the students still have lineage, you know, and I thought that once again was an amazing um, expression of compassion. In what way is that, is that an expression of compassion? Um, because you, you, I just realized the teacher wasn't even, you know, that, that the practice was so much more important than the self, more important than the self. And also just that you, you make sure you don't leave your students with, with nothing, because if you're not there to teach it, then it just, then they have nothing. Um, but with the lineages, as, as they've been set up, you know, there are other teachers to go to, or there are, you know. Okay, so you mentioned you're addicted to the Kumye practices. Mm -hmm. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about what they are and why it is you love them so much? Yes, yeah. They're part of um, the Dzogchen Longde um, series, which is the space, or so we have um, Dzogchen Semde, Longde, and Menakde. And uh, there are physical practices in each of those. Um, Meitsel Gyalmo gave a wonderful talk in Bhutan about it, which I think you can find on YouTube. So I won't go into that so much. But with the Kumye, the idea is that you, <clears throat> you practice the, these different exercises that are extremely uh, strange. You know, we wouldn't come up with exercises like this and you, you, some, some limbs are locked and other limbs are flexible and we're holding what's called the four da, our eyes are wide open, focused in space, unmoving, the tongue suspended, and then you're turning your nose and basically you're working with the talung system um, and the different channels. And then after performing the exercise, you lie down in a meditation posture and this these exercises can create um, a rippling from the central channel called uh, which are known as zapnyams so not nyams in the usual sense of of just meditational experiences that we usually ignore but zapnyams are a, a sort of environment or um, an experience through which uh, rigpa can be discovered so really you know as incredible as tumor and totally accessible to now with Zoom to anybody who wants to learn it anywhere. Um, so I think they're sort of, a, I feel they're a bit undersung, but those of us who love them, love them. And uh, they're practiced, um, they're a little bit like, you know, like this, this that we did when we were young. So um, they have amazing benefits that have nothing to do with, you know, finding the non-dual state. Um, such as, you know, bone density, lymph. I mean, having been a dancer and a Pilates teacher and all these things, I can sort of see all the other. They're incredible for depression, low libido. I mean, that's just, I could just go on and on about their benefits. They're performed, I mean, obviously when we practice them, teaching them, they're not performed this way, but as practice, they're performed naked um, because the tsalung, the tsar points are in areas that need to be accessed when you're naked. So all of those areas we think of as erogenous, but also around the eyes, the neck, the nose circling stimulates the tsar, which are the spatial nerves, you know, under the arms, under the breasts, the navel, between the legs, that sort of all those areas, which is why between the fingers, it's why we lie like this. Um, and then the zapnyams are experienced um, as sort of weather. I guess, if you like, of sort of conditions outside the body. And, and then Rigpa can be 
discovered through those by dwelling in that state. So there and um, yeah, so this is and but they're very different. So I think for a lot of people, there's a bit of aversion. You know, sometimes you have to go through being a bit dizzy or a bit nauseous. Um, but I truly believe they're they're extremely transformative and uh, transforming. Um, and lots of fun if you're someone who likes, I think dancers or ex-dancers always like a challenge. It's like, yeah, come on, give me something I can't do, you know? Um, and what's lovely about them is that, you know, un unlike um, Tumor, you can do them, they're so spread. I could take a martial artist and give him something that would he'd find difficult, you know? And then I could take someone who's 90 and still give them an exercise that they could do with Kumye. So, you know, you can, it can be your practice right through to the end of your life, which I think is also what's quite amazing about it. And there's 111 exercises. So it's, it's a huge, uh, a huge body of exercises as well. If people are interested in learning that, they could presumably contact you and you could, and you teach that on Zoom, do you? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I teach it on Zoom and there are other people teaching it as well, um, but could definitely put people in contact with um, I was just talking to someone in Australia about how we would make the time, you know, how we could set it so that they could learn it as well. And with the time difference. But um, yes, that's what's been really exciting about Zoom. And I wasn't sure at first being sort of a teacher that likes to sort of go up and correct and change people help people that way but i've really enjoyed teaching on zoom so i think it and it does open it up for so many people to learn it and experience it and obviously at some point when we can it's very important to still get that transmission in person but um it's a wonderful way to to know whether you like them or not so yeah my email um is fine for movingbeing111 gmail.com they're they're up on the arrow events site as well um and there are people in Germany and Austria and other places that teach them as well, Sweden. Fantastic. Well, thank you. This has been very interesting. Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you'd like to say something about? Is there something left to say? I don't think so. You're very good at uh, instigating easy conversations. So thank you for that. Um, no, I don't think so. Just, I just, um, Obviously, if you're in love with someone, something or someone, but something you really want, you know, you just think it's the best thing. So um, I think it is, it's a wonderful, I think it's so timely that Nakpas and Nakmas, you know, the Gurkha Changla Day is getting better known because I think for Westerners, and I've met people in Nepal too, who think that the only way to go deeply into practice is to have to become monastic. And I think it's extremely important for people in the West to know that you can go all the way. And, you know, unfortunately we have this word lay, which is just so wrong, you know, because lay means, you know, not of the clergy, not ordained and unprofessional. Um, so we're not lay practitioners. We are nakbas and nakmas that go back to the first spread. You know, so there's a huge lineage. I think Yeshitsogyo had nearly 3,000 Nakma students. Um, so yeah, I just say that I think it's, I think it's very timely. I think what we're, what we have, and you know, even if people don't go all the way into ordination, but to know for the people in the West to know that you can live your life, you can have a job, you know, and, and you can be really serious about practice. I think that's what I'm most grateful for and, um, and want to let people know it exists if they're interested in it. Sangye Ansel, thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.